This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word that we might come to understand who you are. And as we come to understand who you are and your works in history, then that evokes from us a response of obedience, a response of praise, and a desire to learn more. And Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth of your word as it relates to our own thinking and our own lives and that we might come to have a better understanding of what it means to, to worship you and to sing praises to you and the importance of this in our lives. Now, Father, we pray, too, that as we reflect upon your word, we might not uh, forget that all that we have comes from you. And this was exemplified at the greatest extent at the cross, for it was there that our Lord, the eternal second person of the Trinity who had taken on human form, went to the cross, paid for our sins as our substitute, that we might have everlasting life by simply believing and trusting in you. And Father, we pray that as we reflect upon what it means to believe in Jesus as our Savior, that it impacts us as you would have it impact us as it changes the way we think about the world around us, realizing that we are your children and that you have a plan and a purpose for each one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're in verse 16. Colossians 3.16. We are focusing on what it means to sing, why it is that we sing. What's the significance of singing in the congregation? Now, it's interesting because there are some people who just think that somehow singing is just something that we do. Let's just kind of get through the singing so we can get to the real meat of the meeting, which is the study of the word. And we ought to ask ourselves, is that how the Bible approaches singing? Is that how the Bible approaches this whole aspect of what we do? And we ought to be reminded, as I put in my title, that we are to sing to the glory of God. And that means we are to sing uh, to honor God in terms of all that he is. Often the phrase glory of God represents the entirety of his 
essence. So we are to do everything in order to honor God. And this would include what we do uh, when we come together to worship as a uh, corporate body of believers. Colossians 3.16, just to sort of bring our attention back to what we've said the last few weeks, says that we are to let the word of Christ, which is the word of God, richly dwell within us. That's the first phrase. The phrase in all wisdom, as we'll see, really belongs, modifies the two participles, teaching and admonishing. So the command is that we are to let the word of Christ take up its residence within us, to make its home in our lives so that uh, the word of God is fully at home in us. That means we have a familiarity with it. If you have a friend or a family member or someone come to your house and you say that you want them to make make your home their home, you want them to be familiar with it, relaxed, comfortable in every aspect of your home. That's what the Word of God is supposed to be in our lives. It is to be very much at home in everything that we do. That means we have to really, truly know the Word, not just doctrine. Now, doctrine is derived from the Word. We are to know the Word and what the Word teaches, uh, not just abstract principles of application, uh, the Bible is not teaching just some simple uh, pattern of morality, not just giving princ- principles. There are principles there, and often we principalize the basic teachings that are in the, in the Word. But we are to know the Word, the Scripture says. Uh, the psalmist said, uh, Thy Word have I hid in my heart. He didn't say thy principles. He didn't say... Um, you know, thy doctrines, he didn't say uh, thy theology. He said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God that is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not the word of, of, uh, of, of Lewis, Chafer, Lewis Berry Chafer, not the word of, of some uh, theologian, not the word of of um, some hymn, but the word of God is supposed to, um, is what is alive and powerful. And it is powerful because it is the truth. So as I've pointed out in the last uh, couple of weeks, if we paraphrase Colossians 3.16, we could say you and then just fill in the blank with your name, you must. This isn't an option. God isn't giving you an option that you, this is something you can do or not do. You have the choice, but the choice of obedience is the path to life. The choice of disobedience is the path to experiencing, if you're a believer, uh, temporal death. That is, you will have a death-like life. You will not experience the blessings and the joy and the peace that God has for you. So it is a mandate, the prime mandate for the believer to let the word of Christ make itself at home abundantly and generously in every aspect of your thinking and life. That's the application of this. It affects every single thing that we can think of. There's no area of life that you can think of that this doesn't affect in one way 
or another. It is to dwell uh, richly within us. Now, as I pointed out last time, the punctuation in the New King James puts a comma after wisdom, which makes it seem as if the phrase in all wisdom modifies the verb to dwell. Let it dwell with all wisdom. But actually, the phrase in all wisdom modifies the uh, following participle, so the comma should be moved to uh, follow the adverb richly, and then in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Now, these two participles that we have here, teaching and admonishing, are what are called participles of result. This is expressing what the result should be when you have let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the subsequent uh, paragraphs, the subsequent statements that are made here in the remainder of Colossians express other results, other consequences of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 17, let whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it affects everything that we do. Uh, it affects the home. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things. And fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, etc. All of that expresses the consequences of letting the word of Christ uh, richly dwell within you. We get that from looking at the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 on down through chapter 6, verse 9. So the result of this is that we are to teach and admonish one another. And the word teach has the idea of instruction. The word admonish has the idea of warning, admonishing, uh, encouraging someone, challenging them to um, a course of action. For example, in the second hymn that we sang this morning, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, this is a, a hymn of admonishment. Listen to the chorus. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. This is an exhortation to all of us, a reminder to all of us that we are to make Jesus the focal point of our lives. We are to uh, fix our hope upon Jesus, who is the author and uh, completer of our faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, our occupation with Christ. And then uh, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. All the details of life suddenly come into perspective because we realize what's truly important when we are occupied with Christ. So the, this is an ex- exhortation and a challenge to us to put our focus upon him. And then in the last verse, his word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. And then what's the last line there? Then go to a world that is dying his perfect salvation to tell. This is a great reminder that the that our mission given by the Lord to his 11 disciples called the Great Commission and passed down to us is that we are to be witnesses of him throughout all of the world until uh, until the Lord returns. And so we sing hymns like this because they encourage us by these words They remind us of our priorities, and they uh, give us an opportunity to to reflect a little bit about why we 
are believers and what our life is really all about. So we see that the prime directive given in Scripture when it comes to talking about singing is this idea of teaching or instruction as well as admonishing one another. This is the result of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell uh, within us. We see this parallel, as I pointed out last time, in Ephesians 5, uh, 18 and 19. And notice in Ephesians 5:19, the result of being filled by means of the Spirit is to speaking or singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, in both passages, in Ephesians 5:19 and in Colossians 3:16, we have this phrase, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And last time, I mentioned that uh, you will often find uh, pastors and teachers and preachers talk about these in terms of, usually in terms of our modern conceptions. So they'll reflect upon the Psalms and the meaning of the Psalms as singing, singing the Psalms that we have in the Scripture. And there are some traditions coming out of the Reformation and in the early uh, years, uh, first century or two after the Protestant Reformation, uh, there was a there was an emphasis on congregational singing, and the reason for that is that in the Roman Catholic Church, all of the ritual had been conducted in Latin, and nobody understood Latin. Nobody knew what was being said, and so coming out of the Protestant Reformation, you had uh, the major reformers led by uh, men like Martin Luther who wanted to get the language into the or the, the hymns and the singing and everything going on in, in the church in the language of the people in the pew so that they could understand what was going on and participate. And so there was this emphasis on congregational singing, and they had a, uh, a rigid view of let's stick with the Scripture, and so they only sang the Psalms. And they had uh, various... Uh, Tunes. They were very simple that they would sing this, the psalms to, and usually the song leader would give the line, and then the congregation would sing the one line, and then he would say the second line, and they didn't have hymn books, overhead projectors, or anything like that. And it seemed rather stilted and cold, and it wasn't until the early part of the, uh, of the uh, 18th century in the early 1700s, that you had a major revolution take place in hymnody by a man named Isaac Watts, who wrote, who was a pastor as well as a brilliant uh, poet, wordsmith, and wrote a number of hymns, and we sing a number of the hymns that he wrote today. Uh, we sang one last week, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. And uh, <clears throat> he wrote these hymns, and he, as a meditation or reflection upon the Psalms. In fact, his first uh, hymn books that came out were re- called Reflections Upon the Psalms because he realized that there were many New Testament doctrines that were ignored if you only sang the words of the Psalms in the Old Testament. You, they didn't talk anything about uh, Christ and what Christ had accomplished and what had been provided for us in our spiritual life or the Holy Spirit or any of these things. And so what he did, which was revolutionary at the time, he would take the Psalms and he would rework them 
and use the Psalms as his pattern and as his model for creating uh, poetry because essentially the words that we sing in a hymn, the lyrics, are initially a poem, and he would write a poetic reflection upon that psalm. And so the, it's not word for word, the psalm that you find in, in the text, but it's a reflection upon that. And that way he could bring in to the psalm New Testament ideas and church-age doctrines that were related to, to the the ideas in the text of the psalm. And this was added as, as and became very, very popular within a very short time. It was especially stimulated by the uh, First Great Awakening that occurred in both England and, and the United States in the early part of, of the uh, of the 1700s. That often is how people would translate the idea of psalms, and then hymns would be something like what Isaac Watts wrote, a reflection or meditation upon a psalm. It wasn't word for word the psalm. It was something written that was uh, inspired or stimulated by the words in the psalm. And then spiritual songs would be something um, a little further removed from, from the text. However, what we discover is these words that are used for psalms and hymns, um, excuse me, for hymns and spiritual songs are used as synonyms for the psalms in the Old Testament. In one verse, it's, this is, happens various places, but there's, I found this one verse in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 6. And in the translation into the Septuagint, which was the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, done about, uh, to, written about uh, 200 or so, 150 to 200 B.C., that uses these same words in reference to the Psalms. Now, remember, Second Chronicles was written after the uh, Jews returned from the Babylonian exile. So this is many, many years after David wrote the Psalms. Most of the Psalms were fully compiled by about that time. Most of the Psalms were written before the Babylonian exile. There were maybe one or two that were written uh, afterward, during and afterward, but most of them were written before, and it's just at that time, around 530, 520, 516, that they are compiled. And this is uh, sometime in the 400, Second Chronicles is finalized. In Second Chronicles 7, verse 6, we read, And the priests attended to their services, the Levites also with instruments of the music. And the Greek word used there for music is the word uh, hode, which is the word for song. That's the word that's used for spiritual song in Colossians 3.16. Uh, of the Lord, which the King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise, now that's the Masoretic text translation, but in the Septuagint they translated that phrase, offered praise, when David, uh, when, when, when by the hymns of David. That's how they translated that. So they used the word there for hymns. So here in Second Chronicles 7, 6, the Psalms of David are referred to by the word songs as well as by the word hymns. So the, um, the word psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are basically three different ways to designate the, the music of the psalms. So this was... This helps us to understand the text a little better. Paul is not talking about 
uh, three different types of spiritual music. He's talking about the song because this is what was sung at that time. This is what they had for music at this early stage of the church was the Psalms of the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that new hymns can uh, or new psalms couldn't be written, but they wouldn't be inspired by God uh, as the Psalms of the Old Testament were. So that becomes our pattern, our standard for uh, lyrics for music. Now, we live at a time today when there's a lot of controversy going on about about music and music in the church. And there's more heat than light in some places, and this has actually been going on for almost 40 years. And if you go to many, many churches today, uh, you will find that they have something called a contemporary worship service. And they sing a lot of choruses. They put the words up on overhead screen for the, for various choruses. And it is, uh, you, it's referred to by the term contemporary Christian music or contemporary Christian worship. And, uh, there are a lot, lot of, uh, it's been, been very divisive over the years in numerous congregations as they have shifted to an all contemporary type of service. And there's a lot of misconceptions as to what the issues are. Uh, related to this, and uh, and this is something that we need to uh, address and think through as a congregation, realizing that we do what we do for a specific reason, having developed this and understood this from the text of Scripture. We recognize that first and foremost, the Bible does command us to sing. So when we ask the question, why do we sing, the answer is because the Bible says so. It's simple. It's not an option. It's not an alternative. The Bible says that, that we are all to sing, that this is normative as a result of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you and being filled by means of the Spirit. Now, I realize that there are some of us that don't sing as well as others and that there are some who have never really been trained very much in singing. This is a sad byproduct of our of our cultural decline today. We live in a world where in many uh, public schools they don't teach music. When I was young, when I was in elementary school, they taught music. Uh, It wasn't frequent. I think uh, we had a music teacher would come in for 30 minutes uh, uh, at a shot, 30 or 45 minutes at a shot, maybe three times a week. But I learned how to read music. I learned how to read notes. Of course, I was at the same time I was taking piano lessons, so I was getting all of that down. But today you have many people, maybe many of you, don't have a clue how to read music. See, that's a tragedy of our public education system. And I think it's part of spiritual warfare because when you have believers who don't know how to read music or don't know how to sing because they've never been taught, then this whole rich aspect of our spiritual life is lost. And we really live in an age where this is in, in danger. We think about some of the um, ladies that we have in the congregation who play, uh, play accompaniment for us. They are all of an age where in 10 or 15 years, they're not going to be able to do that anymore. And maybe sooner. We don't know. That's just a microcosm of what's going on across across uh, our whole culture. Some churches have already hit that time. Other churches see it just around the corner because somewhere between the around the end of World War II 
when the culture changed and shifted prior to that, uh, it was standard for young people to grow up, learn how to play uh, the organ, learn how to play piano, learn how to play accompaniment. And often entertainment wasn't around the television. It was around the family piano. And there would be several people who could play the piano, and people would sing together, families would sing together. And it was in that context that they learned how to uh, how to sing in harmony, it was in that context that they learned how to how to play these musical instruments and play accompaniment. But with the shifting generations and culture from the 50s on, that has been uh, lost in a lot of ways. And there are much, much fewer people who are trained and available today to play accompaniment, to play organ, play piano. Uh, for for a local church, so it affects that aspect. It affects the aspect of uh, of the congregation singing. There are sometimes, as I watch the congregation, there are people who don't sing. They never sing. The, we you ought to be challenged by this verse that this is a part of your spiritual responsibility. It's part of letting the word of Christ uh, dwell in your life. It's part of filling, being filled by means of the Spirit. It's a, it's a result of that. It doesn't say, you know, if you feel like it, if you think you can sing, uh, none of those qualifications are put there. This is expected of believers. It is a, uh, a response uh, to the grace of God. A couple of passages I want to look at this morning just to uh, reaffirm this for you in the Old Testament. In Psalm Let's look first at Psalm 68. Psalm 68, of course, this morning's uh, scripture reading was in Psalm 33, which began, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. It doesn't say praise from the upright is beautiful if they can sing. That's not even a textual emendation. Said, praise the Lord with the heart, make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Now, just as a side note, there are um, some traditions in Christianity that are against the use of instruments in um, in, in the use of, of in instruments in Scripture, and that's not um, that's that's not accurate either. In fact, if you we look back at I'll put it up on the screen again. If we look back at Ephesians five. 19, speaking um, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The word there translated making melody in your heart to the Lord is the Greek verb solo. The noun form was psalm. That's psalmas. That's the noun form. The verb was solo, uh, P-S-A-L-L-O. And it, the root meaning of this word meant to pluck, to twang a bowstring, and to pluck the strings of a harp. So right there in Ephesians 5.19, the singing relates to uh, singing with your voice, and making melody relates to uh, making melody with a musical instrument. So the text makes it very clear that musical instruments are appropriate uh, for worship, then, um, uh, as I was saying, turn to Psalm sixty-eight, four, and we read here in verse four: "Sing to God." 
And this is a command. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides upon the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. So we have, again, a specific commands, and this, of course, is the Old Testament, but we've already seen the New Testament passages that reiterate this. So we're, what I'm pointing out is that throughout the history of Scripture, there is this expectation that the people of God will respond to God and ought to respond to God in singing. Uh, if you look down a little further in Psalm 68, down to verse uh, 32, he comes, the psalmist comes back to this theme, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth, O sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides upon the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Now, what do you, when you sing, it's not just singing praise to God. Last week I told the story that happened recently with uh, Jim Myers when he was in Zambia, and they had sung a number of these praise choruses that had been uh, brought over from America, unfortunately. And they have very, very little content in their words. And Jim loves music, and his soul felt somewhat parched by the absence of uh, good music during the week. And so he asked the song leader if they could close by singing Amazing Grace. But when he had them sing Amazing Grace, the song leader said, well, let's not sing the words. Everybody knows the tune. Let's just sing the words Alleluia. So they sang just the words Alleluia all the way through to the tune of Amazing Grace. Now, Alleluia is a form of a Hebrew verb, Allel, which means to praise. It's in the imperative form, which is a command to praise. And the last syllable, Yah, is the first syllable of God's name, Yahweh. So Hallelujah translates as a command to praise God. But you don't praise God by simply repeating the command to praise God. You praise God by explaining what it is that God has done and what God has accomplished in your life. And this is what we see here in verse 34 is describing uh, that praise, the content of ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel and his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Now, what I want you to notice in this psalm, because the lyrics of the psalm, while we recognize that no human being can ever write to that level because these are breathed out by God, this is our pattern. We are to look to these as the ultimate standard for our lyrics. There's not a restriction to one verse repeating one or two phrases over and over. There is a doctrinal development. There is an ongoing explanation of what God has done in, um, in history. And so when we sing, we're not just repeating phrases or clauses again and again, but there should be doctrinal development. Uh, it's, um, the point I'm going to make here is that when we sing, uh, when we sing to God, we don't just take a phrase from Scripture or a verse from Scripture and simply repeat it. That is 
typical in various forms of contemporary uh, Christian music. It is, it's rather uh, shallow and, and limited. Just the recitation of Scripture has, doesn't mean much. It has no explanation, no theological or doctrinal uh, development. And, um, and this is part of the problem that, that, we, that we see today. Now, there are various other, um, well, let me go to one other verse before we uh, move on. Go to Psalm 96, from Psalm 68 to Psalm 96. Song, Psalm 96 is, again, a um, descriptive praise psalm. In other words, it's describing why we should praise God. Verse 1 begins with a command. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, a new song doesn't mean a song that is reflective of the music of the, this next generation. Part of the self-absorption, the narcissism of the last two major two or three generations, starting with the baby boomers in the 60s, is the idea that somehow what has been accepted and proclaimed and followed as a pattern for 2,000 years in Christianity isn't good enough for this generation. We have to have our own music. Now, there are a number of problems with that, but we'll get into some of those later on. But one of the things we should reflect upon is this is the first generation in Houston, I mean, in history that's ever had the arrogance to say we want our own form of music. Up until World War II, the World War II generation, there was an understanding that there was a distinction between sacred music and what you sang at home. Folk music usually, or pop music is really a product of the 20th century. You didn't have such a thing as pop music prior to the 20th century. That's one of the uh, newer uh, developments. But for most of the time in the history of Christianity, uh, what you had was, was a realization that when you went to church, the culture of the church was the culture of God. Outside of the church is the culture of the world. It was not expected that when you went to church, you would sing the kinds of songs or have the kind of music that was sung outside of church. There was a culture difference. And the culture in the church was impacted and affected by the, the thinking of Scripture. And so there was, there was that understanding. But when the baby boomers came along, suddenly... Uh, they had the idea, we want to sing the kind of music we like to sing, and notice that's never a standard in Scripture, uh, w- rather than what has been developed and thought through for centuries by previous generations who've given uh, profound time, uh, profound thought and time and energy to developing biblical forms and content for the worship of the body of Christ. So... Uh, Singing a new song is not singing something that's new for your generation, but singing a new song simply reflects, if we study this term out in Scripture, that as as new God interacts 
in human history and in our lives, as time goes by, there are new things to praise God about, so there are reasons to write new hymns of praise to God for what he has done. That's why uh, that's the meaning of singing a new song, not a new kind of song for a new generation, but a new song because God has now performed uh, new things in life. So we're, we're commanded here in Psalm 96.1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Notice that the second stanza, the second line of verse 2, the second line of verse 2 talks about proclaiming the good news, but it's in the context of what we sing. We're singing about the good news, the gospel. That's what gospel means is good news from the Greek word evangelion, which means good news or a good announcement. Um, we are to proclaim that good news of his salvation through what we sing. And then verse 3, declare his glory among the nations and his wonders among the people. Now, if you stop and think about history, the history of music a little bit, I think it, it, it wouldn't take a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of illustration to demonstrate to you that Western music, that is the music that, is the, uh, that has come out of Western civilization, European and American civilization primarily, is music that it is what it is because of Christianity. That no other world religion, no pagan forms of religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, have produced music. But in when Christianity impacted the paganism of the Greco-Roman world at that time, it transformed the culture. And out of that transformed culture came a development in the arts and specifically a development in music that was completely revolutionized. And almost all music that, de that developed from uh, the end of the, the fall of the Roman Empire, let's say, to the time of the uh, uh, 19th century and the end of the Enlightenment, almost all music was church-based, and it was related to worship, and all of the developments of music were that way. And in fact, in many cases today, especially if you're talking about um, uh, R&B or other, some uh, rock or some other forms of uh, contemporary pop music, uh, that many of those, many of the singers got their starts in singing in a church choir. If Christianity had never been here, we would not have the music that we have in the world today. So that only Christianity has had that impact. And this is a result of the people of God, the church, reflecting and applying these principles, the, the great music of many of the uh, uh, composers down through history were declaring the glory of God among the nations. So why do we sing to God? Because the scripture says so, the scripture commands us to. Now there's more to this than simply looking at uh, the commands of Scripture. We understand this is what we were supposed to do, but now we have to answer some tough questions. Well, what is it that we should sing, and how should we sing it? 
What are the words? What about the music? What are the issues in all of this? And this is something that we'll uh, pick up next time as we come back and continue, uh, continue in this study. Scripture teaches that all that we are doing, as we'll see in the next verse in Colossians, is to, that we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to glorify him because of his death on the cross because we have, because we have salvation. And as we come to reflect upon that, it has an impact on us, and that impact often is, uh, is emotional. It affects us in many different ways, and these are ways uh, we, we express this through, through singing. And so that is uh, extremely important in terms of our spiritual life. But notice it's the understanding of what the Scripture teaches precedes and, and, uh, and evokes the emotions. It's not the other way around. It's not the music that evokes the emotions. It's the content that evokes the emotions. And so we always have to be careful when we evaluate and think about singing uh, how this is structured so that it is always the word of God and the truth of God that is what is impacting our soul. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon the fact that you have supplied us with a perfect salvation And as a result of that, as a result of your work in history, that you have acted in our lives and acted in history, we respond to that with joy, with enthusiasm. We respond by singing uh, great psalms that uh, cause us, that express our joy, cause us to rejoice in all that you have done for us. Father, we are so thankful for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who paid for all of our sins, not, uh, not to get something from us, but just as a free act of love. And in that, your love was demonstrated to us so that all that is needed is for us to accept, in Christ, accept Christ as our Savior. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins, that by simply believing or trusting in him and him alone, you can have eternal life. Salvation is not something that we generate or we produce. It's not a result of our works. It is a result only of his work on the cross. And we participate in that simply by trusting or believing in him. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us with the truth of your word, with what you teach teach us about the importance of praising you and <clears throat> worshiping you corporately, worshiping you in music, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.